Hey everyone, welcome to the Interesting Hour Podcast. I'm Devesh Verma, and with me, my co-host... Justin Kupinoff. Justin Kupinoff. And today's episode is produced by, surprise, surprise, Core Foundation. Core Foundation, a multimedia nonprofit. You can check us out at cor-foundation.org. We're doing some pretty cool stuff. Check us out. Buy our merch. Donate. Do things. Also, we got Chuck Levins in the house. Chuck Levins. Thanks for hooking us up. All of our fancy equipment that we got came from them. Yeah, they helped us out. They gave us a good deal. And without their support, this podcast would not be up and running other than from Core Foundation. But yeah, yeah. Well, we'd be recording on our iPhones. And yeah, I know, because really Core Foundation does not provide the top-notch equipment like Chuck <laughs> Levins. So Chuck Levins, thanks, guys. You guys are awesome people. Everyone, if you have any music musical needs or audio equipment needs, just check them out. Yeah. Yeah. And also, shout out to the Pacific Science Institute... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why are we Why are we shouting out to them? Oh, because we just got a little guy coming on today. A little guy. By the name of uh, Garrett Lisi. Garrett Lisi. What? For people who don't know who that is, you're about to get schooled so hard listening to this episode. Uh, Garrett Lisi is a crazy man, a madman in a good way because yeah. he's thinking outside the box and he's a super ridiculously smart theoretical physicist. And the fact that he took time out of his schedule to hang out with us yeah, and this guy's done two TED Talks. Yeah, and he's Dude, been this like, guy was on Through the Wormhole. Through the Wormhole with Morgan Freeman, anyone? Can Seriously? we just like let, like, let that I process for a second? Am I talking to the wrong demographic here? Does anyone <laughs> not watch this stuff? Anyways, check out this episode. You're bound to learn a thing or two. We talk about his E8 theory of everything, and it's just awesome. Little dense, little dense. A little dense. You're going to have to hit that rewind button a couple times, but it's going to be well worth it. Yeah. yeah. Enjoy it, guys. One, two, three, four. <laughs> Here we are, guys, with Dr. Garrett Lisi. Garrett, how you doing, man? I'm doing well, Devesh. How about yourself? All right. Oh, by the way, Justin is here as well. Sorry. Yeah, but we're. I'm not really going to be involved in this episode. I'm just, <laughs> I'm Obviously, just I didn't care enough to introduce Justin. But uh, yeah, no, Justin. How's it going, Justin? Good. I, I got some questions for this scientist guy. <laughs> well, scientist guy. Oh, great. <laughs> well, let's introduce the scientist guy, as I've already done. Garrett, say your name and what you are and what you do and all that good jazz. Uh, yes, my name is Garrett Lisi, and what I do is a mystery to almost everybody. Uh, <laughs> but uh, on the less ethereal side, I run a small science institute in Maui called the Pacific Science Institute, which has the mission of making life better for scientists. I have uh, scientist friends out here to enjoy the island, which I've lived on for the last 20 years or so. He's talking about and, Hawaii, uh, everybody, by the way. He lives yeah. in Hawaii. <laughs> And the reason I started that is because I wanted a project that could not possibly fail. Because the other thing I work on is theoretical physics, which can be very <laughs> difficult and often you can't get anywhere. anywhere. But uh, so that's my background. My background is in theoretical physics. I got a PhD in 99 and sort of split off from academia because I didn't like the directions it was going in and decided to work on things on my own instead. And uh, since you could do that anywhere in the world, I decided to do it in Maui. Why not? <laughs> yeah, I mean, was there anything particular in Maui other than the beauty? Is you're a surfer too? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So it was it was really all about the the ocean here is just spectacularly beautiful and it gets good waves year round. Hmm. So I wanted to come here to surf. Uh, what I didn't know at the time because I was I hadn't spent that much time here is Maui is also one of the best places in the world for wind. So uh, when I got here, you know, I came over with a bunch of surfboards, but I'm standing at the beach and all these guys are riding windsurf boards. 
and <laughs> nobody's nobody's surfing. So I, just so I learned how to windsurf, and that was just ridiculously fun. And then about a decade ago, uh, this new sport started rising up called kite surfing. Have and you, that, that's that's you, just a ridiculous amount of fun. You've so been I've a been part of that as well. That. I've seen those guys doing that out there. Like, is yeah. Uh, so so most most of my time now, uh, <laughs> I'm I'm kite surfing, pretty much every every other day. Wow. This research on hold, <laughs> kite, surf, kite surfing. Well, I try to I try to balance. I yeah. try to balance. So I and I think it's important to to balance, you know, physical activity with mental activity. Otherwise, you end up stuck one way or the other. You, you either end up really banging your head against things and frustrated and, you know, human beings just aren't meant to live that way. We're not, we're not brains in a jar. I love that. You know? That's so, so true. So true. So people can, I think, think uh, much better if they're physically active and out enjoying nature. Yeah. And that's definitely like, you know, um, when Devesh brought this whole idea for an interview up to me, I was like, you know, I looked you up and it's like, surfer dude solves theory of everything. Like, it's just <laughs> stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, it sounds, it sounds like an Onion article, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which I'm sure a scientist does not want the association of an Onion article. Yeah, there was, I'm not sure that publicity was entirely positive for <laughs> Well, you know what, man? I didn't find you through the Onion. I found her through uh, your featured spot in uh, Through the Wormhole, actually. Uh, just hearing like your work being talked with Morgan Freeman's voice was already convincing for me, I feel like. Like, yeah, that was that was a little surreal. I mean, people will believe anything that's said with that voice. It's yeah. amazing. <laughs> I think that's why he's had such success in the entertainment industry. <laughs> nothing, yeah, it's nothing about talent, just that voice. <laughs> yep. yep. Um, also, Garrett, like, if people like searched your name online, they'll find like a lot of content of things that just your outreach and things that you're doing just to get information out there to people, and also. Um, the Singularity University, like you've done videos for them now. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I did a couple of videos for them. Uh, I think the most popular one was around the announcement of the Higgs boson discovery when people weren't really sure what that was. Mm -hmm. So I, I happened to be in the Barry at the time. So I ducked into SU and gave a short interview on, uh, on what that was all about. And, and that seemed very helpful since people, this was huge news and people weren't sure what the heck was going on. So it was right. very useful to give a, a layman's description I think, of, I think of what that is. I shared that link with like some friends and family. I was like, yo, Higgs boson, like, what is this? I'm like, here, listen to this dude. <laughs> <laughs> listen yeah. to him. Right, yeah, because I mean, like, you know, I, I try to keep up with stuff like that, but it's just something I heard in the news and it didn't necessarily mean anything to me. Like, I didn't realize what a big deal it was until I just kept seeing article after article, you know, on this. Yeah, it's pretty gnarly. Yeah, I mean, and it's, I mean, in some ways, I mean, it's hard to know how much weight to give it because in some ways it has almost zero effect on our practical lives. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, you're talking about discovering fundamental building blocks of nature mm -hmm. and, and, you know, finding out what this universe is at, at an essential fundamental level. So in that sense, it's huge news. But how do you weight that? How do you weight something that is, you know, hugely philosophically significant but has no practice in it? Oh, oh we're, getting, we're losing you. We're losing you. Um, yeah, sorry. We, just, how you actually have, we cut out throughout the whole section. Do you mind saying that one more time, Garrett? Right. So, so with the Higgs boson, it's kind of hard to know how to weight it because you're talking about something that has a huge philosophical significance. You're talking about the fundamental building blocks of nature, but at the same time, energetically, it's so remote that it has almost no practical significance. So you don't really know how to weight this in importance. 
it's still like you know when I'm hearing like these discoveries, like the fact that we don't know what this means entirely, that's just so exciting. Like it's amazing. Like we yeah, but that's like the downfall of like the scientific community, right? It's like people will say, okay, what's the monetary value we can get from oh, this discovery, economist. or like yeah. you know, like uh, what's the point of researching this stuff, etc. Like Why it, are we... it seems like there's no like practical application, like. In the near future, yeah, but so there, it's there, like, there are minor offshoots that happen. You know, like the internet, right? <laughs> oh, that, that little invention, that little thing. I don't know if we, I don't know how many people know about that, Garrett. I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, the, I mean, the the World Wide Web was invented at CERN, which is which is where the LHC is. It's the the European Center for Particle Physics, mm-hmm. and this was this was the World Wide Web was set up so that physicists could exchange ideas about physics. I just and they that said, fact. "Oh, we'll, we'll we'll open up to others. Maybe some others would like using it." And yeah, just a, just a few <laughs> others. It's like Facebook, man. Like it was only open to college students at first, and like everyone got on there. Everyone. Yep. Um, but you know, these things are are you know uh, thought up in you know people's like spare time. They're like doing research, and they just hypothesize like a Higgs boson, etc. Um, <laughs> simple stuff. Simple stuff. But like it takes a while to prove these things, and that's what your the Pacific Science Institute is trying to like foster, correct? Yeah, so the idea is to get people away from academia uh, to where they can be sort of outside their normal environment. And, you know, they're running around and learning stuff and playing on the island, which is gorgeous. And then uh, this is really an institute for introverts. So we have these little mm-hmm. guest cabins that people can stay in and, uh, and basically ch- spend their time working on whatever they want. all over the walls in these rooms? Uh, we have whiteboards. Yep. Okay, all right. Wouldn't be, in, wouldn't be a science institute without whiteboards. <laughs> I'm just trying to envision one of these rooms. <laughs> But it's it's a I mean I'd like to grow it larger but right now it's a very small operation basically I pulled all the resources I could together and bought a small house here and uh, built some guest cabins with a friend of mine mm-hmm. and uh, it's we're we're pretty small scale uh, it's certainly it's something I'd like to grow it larger but as it is it's just been fantastic to have a bunch of scientists come through and help them enjoy the island oh, yeah, yeah. And do you so- have any people there right now that are currently working on uh, no we, we go on breaks every once in a while my uh the next group is coming through in a week and we had we've had someone here about a week ago oh okay so, so it happens like a week at a time or yeah people tend to come out for a week or two okay how it works for their schedule although the record the record is four months nice, <laughs> nice. and you're like it's like he's sitting on your couch and like eating all your cereal and you're like dude you gotta go now i know you like the science stuff but come on man i know the science but just, i think you just gotta go <laughs> Uh, Garrett, where can uh, yeah, we, we have not we have not had a full on guy on the couch uh, scientist visit yet. It's, <laughs> Garrett, if people are here, it's because they're engaged in, in usually some pretty fascinating research activity, and they they want to continue that in somewhere pretty and and not worry about things like paying rent or feeding themselves that much. Yeah, is it is it is what research they're doing? Is it always in line with yours, or is it just different nope. stuff? Like. Nope, I have I have had some people here who uh, whose research overlaps with mine, and in fact, I'm having a conference here uh, in about a week. In, sorry, in about a month, that should be pretty fantastic that way. Awesome. But uh, for the most part, uh, we are uh, science agnostic in terms of we don't demand that uh, people be working on specific things. We like to support undirected research because I think that the the best research gets done when people really want to do it, and so right. we try not to direct it. I love it. You rebel scientist, you. Yeah, what's wrong with you, Garrett? That's such bad well, I mean, thinking. <laughs> <laughs> n- n- 
no, nobody goes out and revolutionizes science because there was a grant that said you must go revolutionize science in this way. Nobody does it that way. They do mm-hmm. it because this thing, you know, they figure out something new. It's like, really, I think something is, is this way. I'm going to pursue it. And they, it's, it's self-motivated. And that's, that's the way really cool things get found. You should, uh, I mean, not to discredit the prestige, what you're building, uh, if you open it up to like screenwriters and just Hollywood people, I'm sure they would take you up on that offer too. Just letting you know. If you're (laughs) you're looking at expansion, that's I'm pretty flexible. I mean, we, we, (laughs) I mean, we pretty much uh, take care of everybody here, not just scientists, but also science friendly creatives. So, and we're pretty flexible in, in how that goes. Awesome. Uh, we would uh, love to accept your invitation to come and stay with you. Thank, thank you. you so much, Garrett. Uh, that let's was, see how the interview so nice. goes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, Garrett, how can people get a hold of you, uh, specifically about the, uh, the specific sci- Pacific Science Institute? Well, the most important thing is that they know how to pronounce it. Yes. The, yeah. uh, oh, uh, it's okay. It's okay. Um, just, just correct no, me no, this I mean, entire episode. Google is your friend. Fine. You just type it into Google. You'll find it. Cool. So we have a, we have a web page. Um, we have a Facebook page. Uh, uh, it's We're not hard to find. Cool. Awesome, man. If you don't mind, I wanted to kind of segue and talk about um, your TED Talks, which is awesome. And last time I looked, it had a million four hundred thousand views. Like a couple people watched and, it. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> but I was just curious how how was it uh, doing that? Did they reach out to you? Did you like submit something to them? I'm just curious about how that all came about. Well, it was very strange what happened, especially you know from my perspective because I'd I'd been working on a lot of these ideas and building them up for for many years. Um, basically, I left uh, academia after getting my PhD and went on, went out and uh, worked on these things on my own for years and purely working on them on a mathematical level, you know, working with matrices and algebras and uh, all this detailed mathematics. And it was only around 2007 that I found that the mathematics I'd been working on actually has a pretty striking visual representation. So that a lot of the algebraic structures I was working with, you can actually display the algebra graphically using diagrams. And that these diagrams were actually quite pretty. Mm-hmm. And that, in fact, the algebra that I had built up over many years actually matched the structure of what is considered the most beautiful structure in mathematics, which mm-hmm. is called the E8 Lie group. And, and this, this was just astounding to find this. And I put a paper out on it. And at the same time, I was starting to go around to physics conferences uh, because I'd gotten some private grant support. And uh, this was this theory I put out was starting to get some play, and people were paying attention to it. <clears throat> How did you and first was, notice that when people were starting to pay attention to it? Like, uh, it was mostly at conferences. Usually, if you're the guy at the conference that says you're working on a theory of everything, nobody talks to you. <laughs> <laughs> Who's this joker? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But I would, I, would, I would give talks, and then um, people would actually come up and talk to me, and I'd you know, have little crowds around me, and it was, that, was, that was great. And at one point, uh, it was, uh, the editor of New Scientist uh, picked up on this and started acting, asking other people, hey, is this, is this guy for real? Is he actually working on something interesting? And she assigned a journalist to do a story on my work. And uh, this journalist and I went back and forth and worked up a little article for New Scientist that I figured I'd show to my parents and they'd finally have some idea of what I was, what I've been doing all these years. Oh, <laughs> well, we've all been there. <laughs> <laughs> but and that and that was great. But but that's not what happened. What happened was this article was about to go to press to New Scientist, and uh, a fellow from the Guardian 
got hold of this and said, wait, 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 wait. This guy is a surfer in Maui who's working on this? Mm-hmm. And so he totally uh, pivoted and, said, and made this, uh, this shorter article that was more a lifestyle piece about, hey, it's this surfer who's come up with this, this theory. And, and that, sort of, <laughs> oh. that sort of spun the press in that direction so that when, when that went out, uh, sort of in conjunction with there being a, a paper released on it, as well as a pop- popular article on it, as well as this uh, sort of more personality-based piece of, you know, this guy is a surfing physicist. Isn't that fantastic? Uh, <laughs> that, that's, that really sort of propelled it throughout the rest of the media. And it was a little strange because physics stories don't usually th- get that much attention, mm-hmm. especially stories about, you know, proposed new theories that might be wrong. Right. And whenever, whenever you're making a proposal, I mean, these things happen fairly regularly in physics. And sometimes, uh, as this one did, they'll start getting a little bit of attention within the community and that'll build. But what happened is this thing was just hit with a wave of popular press attention. And, uh, and, and physicists weren't sure what to make of it at that point. But, uh, and, and meanwhile, my, my email inbox is, is useless because I have too many messages coming in, so I'm not sure what that can do. I, and I'm surprised you replied to my message. I was just like, hey, Dr. Lisi, how's it going? Do you want to be on our show? Thanks. <laughs> That's pretty much like, in a nutshell, whatever, a lot more than that. But Yeah, and even, yeah. At, I just want to tell our audience, even at this time, we have are creating a backlog and have no episodes out, so this guy's like, has no idea who we are, can't find episodes online, and just thinks we're trolls. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I so. don't know who these guys are. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, no. We're semi-legit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, no, honestly, I appreciate because I know. But for, but for Ted, uh-huh. the so I have all these emails coming in and, you know, uh, Google's doing their best to filter them. Yeah. Uh, but what the, But I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm too inundated, but I still go and check my spam box because what the hell. And sure enough, there in my spam box is an invitation to speak at Ted. <laughs> nice. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> nice. <laughs> it's a good thing I checked. Yeah. Couldn't so, give me a call, guys. Come on. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Obviously, man. something's wrong with Google's filter because we got through, <laughs> but not Ted. Okay. <laughs> well, I think yours was a, a personally used uh, email, whereas uh, yeah. Ted does send out, you know, advertisements every once in a while. So, sure. You know, sure. It's, it's not always an invitation. Um, <laughs> That's awesome, though. So, that, he must have been, I would have been stoked having an invitation to Ted to talk. Um, my word. Yeah, you know, it was a combination of stoked and utterly terrified. <laughs> I, I imagine. I, Ted had just uh, started to come online. They just started to put their talks online in 2005, 2006 Garrett, or so. Garrett, you're sounding like a, a normal person here. I, I don't approve <laughs> uh, I know. I'm, it. I'm sorry to disappoint you. <laughs> all, right, all right. Keep going, I guess. I guess. <laughs> keep going. <laughs> so, uh, and, and they were inviting me to speak that February. So that was two months to prepare. And I hadn't done any public speaking for a decade. You know, I was a sort of a hermit out living on an island in the middle, middle of the Pacific and generally don't talk to people. Kite surfing. But, um, yeah. yeah. And, <laughs> and so this was, uh, so I did my best to, to put together a decent talk, and I, um, but I didn't really have time to practice delivering it. Mm-hmm. So I did the best I could to make a, a visually impressive uh, talk that would get the information across visually. And uh, and pretty much keep the audience's attention off of me. <laughs> <laughs> it was a good TED talk, man. No, it was great. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Uh, you've done two of them, I think. No. Well, was... I've done one TED talk and then one TEDx talk that was here on Maui. That's a little bit shorter. And that was a more recent one, correct? That was in. Yeah, that was that was a more recent one. Yeah, I, I liked uh, your visuals in that one. 
Oh, thank you. The little floaties, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's like, I, I figure if you're if you're if you're trying to explain particle physics to a, a popular at a popular level and you can do it using pool toys, all the better. And it's actually, <laughs> but I, I you know I don't like to um, mislead people with bad analogies. Mm-hmm. So when I'm describing the geometry of particle physics, I try to do it in a legitimate way, where we're actually talking about the geometric structure uh, underlying uh, elementary particles. And you can actually do that using, you know, tori and, and spheres and cylinders and things and arrows. And this is actually a lot of the ways that physicists actually think in their head graphically and visually uh, when they're thinking about these things. So um, I tried to use good visual aids that would uh, do this and also be understandable uh, in a visual way to a general audience. You know, I have these questions set aside for later in the episode when we're going to be talking about your EA theory of everything. And uh, I'm just going to ask it now because you're kind of touching on it already. Um, can you go and explain to our listeners what are Lie groups, uh, E8 Lie group, or you know, just geometry and mathematics and how it ties in with theoretical physics? Why is geometry sure. important? Yeah, why is geometry? Like, I mean, other that's than, what I find like really hard to grasp out yeah. of all this. Yeah. Right. So we have this whole zoo of elementary particles now. I mean, most people know about electrons, uh, and which orbit atoms, but these atomic nuclei. Uh, are made out of protons and neutrons, and those protons and neutrons are made out of quarks. Okay. And, and most people have probably heard of quarks. Mm-hmm. And, and, and quarks are sort of like electrons, except they have different charges. And by that I mean they have not only different electric charges, which they do, they also have something called strong charge. And all these particles also have a kind of charge called weak charge. So all these particles have these different kinds of charge, and they also all interact gravitationally. And uh, you have this other sort of gravitational charge called spin, uh, which is uh, connected to angular momentum. Mm-hmm. But underneath all these properties that these particles have, there are these mathematical structures that have these charge properties pop out as a description of their mathematical structure. Now, how does this happen? So. Uh, and, the, and the mathematical structures that describe these things are the mathematics of geometry. So uh, if you take an electron, for example, and, how, and what its electric charge is, you can think of electromagnetism as being described by circles twisting over space-time. And I very specifically say over space-time and not in space-time, because you have to consider it as a different dimension sticking out of four-dimensional space-time. Not to blow anyone's mind with that one comment, by the way. <laughs> yeah, just just a little side note just about side extra note. dimensions. Right. And like, I, right. I, I encourage listeners to rewind that and understand what he just said. So okay, go so, on. So, so the idea is you. So for electromagnetism, you think of space time as being five dimensional, um, and the you have the three spatial de- you have the three spatial directions that we move around in, and then the one direction of time that's different. But then, if you're going to describe electromagnetism in space time. You can describe it by having uh, this other fifth dimension that corresponds to circles wrapped around on each other. And since they're perfectly symmetric circles, when we move in that direction, we don't notice that we're moving in that direction. And you just come back to where you started. Right. However, when these circles twist over space-time with this five-dimensional uh, surface twist, we actually see the result in our three-dimensional space as electric and magnetic fields. Hmm. You get that? Yes. So, so 
So although, although we don't perceive this as a direction that we can move in, we actually perceive it as electromagnetism in space-time. So it does have an effect. It's just not, it's not uh, like a usual dimension that we can move in. So is that the only hint that it gives us that this other dimension is there, is that we see the electromagnetism? Well, this is – so this description of electromagnetism uh, goes back quite a ways. But then when you tar- start looking at the other elementary particles, uh, they have these odd quantized electric charges. So an electron will have an electric charge of minus one, uh, quarks two-thirds and, and one-thirds. And they, uh, they all interact according to these quantized conserved charges when they, when they interact with one another. But these things actually correspond – to geometry, so when an electron, so when a quark has a has a charge of one third, that means it's twisting once uh, around this electromagnetic circle. That's this sort of inner dimension. Mm-hmm. And uh, and when you talk about an electron having three times that electric charge, that is a uh, you can think of that as a vector that twists three times around that same circle. So it's almost okay. a, like it's about the speed it's moving or the amount of rotations? and It's actually about this geometric object. So if you imagine a geometric object at every point in space-time, mm-hmm. you can think about these circles of space-time and then these little vectors or other circles. You can think of, a, you can think of an arrow as being tangent to a, a different circle. Mm-hmm. So, so now you can think about two circles twisting around one another mm-hmm. to make this sort of little twisty knot. Mm-hmm. And you can just count the twists of one of the circles around the other, and that's its electric charge. Okay. So this is how you can describe electric charge and describe the interactions of elementary particles uh, using pure geometry. And mathematicians have done this for a long time, and these, these geometries that you can build up by twisting different sets of circles around each other are called Lie groups. And this was, this was named after uh, Sophus Lee, the guy who came up with the idea. When did he come up with now, the idea? Yeah, uh, this is uh, the complete classification of Lie groups was at the beginning of the 20th century, so around 1900 or so is completed. Okay, thank you. <laughs> so they're 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 quite old, um, mathematically speaking, mm-hmm. and and these things um, have uh, have been used for and, and explored a great deal by mathematicians, and it was only in the 50s that they really started getting used extensively by physicists to describe elementary particles. And it turns out that all the elementary particles, the electrons, quarks, neutrinos, uh, all the force bosons, the Higgs boson, all of these can be described using the geometry of these Lie groups. Hmm. And, and, it's all, and it all comes down geometrically to these high-dimensional surfaces you can build by twisting circles around one another, which can all be described by uh, the charges corresponding to the twists. And when you have when you have particles interacting, right? We, if they have to have the same electric charge coming in as you have electric charge coming out, so their twist numbers have to add. And so you can you can describe particle interactions using these nice uh, twist diagrams. And they're also also quite pretty. <laughs> as as I see, my buddy Devesh is wearing a shirt. Oh, yeah, <laughs> fantastic! You're, you're wearing one of these beautiful... E8 shirts. Yeah, yeah. Great. So, yeah. I've just been staring at Devesh's chest the entire time he's speaking. Like, uh, in obviously. All right, so let me let me let me walk you let me walk you through that that Thanks, E8 Justin. diagram. What that means. So yes, and we will have this in the show notes, so yeah, you can yeah. check this out also while he's. Uh, all right. So uh, so for these Lee groups, um, 
like I said, so for each circle you have inside one of these Lie groups, you can have different twists around that circle. But there are some circles in this Lie group that do not twist around one another. So you pick out a set of circles that don't twist, and that basically looks like a, a donut. But it can be, a, in, depending on the dimension of the Lie group, how many circles it has, uh, you can have a, a larger and larger dimensional donut. So for E8, that's a, a set of eight circles. That's where the name comes from. Mm-hmm. That don't twist around another, and that's called the maximal torus within the E8 Lie group. So what this means is you have eight different kinds of charge. So uh, and as the other circles in the Lie group twist around uh, that eight-dimensional internal donut, that maximal torus, you have these eight different twist numbers that correspond to their twists, and they all have to be integral multiples. So that when you can now plot this thing out. You can actually make this plot in eight dimensions with one dimension, with one dimension corresponding to each one of the circles and plot this thing out as a diagram for all uh, 248 sets of circles, which each correspond to a different dimension in this E8 Lie group. And you can plot this out in eight, eight dimensions and then project it down to two and see that it's really gorgeous. You have a, you have a, a lot of patterns in this yeah. thing. I think you helped so it, it a little bit uh, represent, like, it looks, it looks awesome. It looks great on a t-shirt. Right. So <laughs> it's, it's, like, it's like this, I mean, the pattern, and, and, and so these, these are called weight diagrams or twist diagrams, and they really show all the structure in these lead groups. And it's, I mean, all the, all the platonic solids are in here. All, you can project, project any polytope uh, almost out of this thing. And it's, it's really pretty as a high-dimensional structure. And you can see all these patterns when you project it down to two dimensions. Mm-hmm. And then... Uh, so this has been known to mathematicians for a long time, but physicists only fairly recently found out that these beautiful patterns from mathematics actually correspond precisely to the charges that elementary particles have. So when you talk about electrons having, you know, these, these three twists and quarks having one or two, and then Higgs bosons have, have their twists and uh, other particles have theirs, and all these twists correspond to electric charge, to weak charge, to strong charge and to gravitational spin. You see, hold on, and, gonna, I have to cut you off there. Like, when you tell me a fact like that, like that's fascinating. Like, the correlation. Yeah. Like, why is there? Do we know why there's a correlation between the two? Like, that's pretty amazing. This scene, like, yeah, yeah, we know. the The reason is because the universe is fundamentally mathematical. That's the only possible explanation. Is this universe that we're in fundamentally is this beautiful bit of geometry. Oh, man, I wish I was better in geometry in school. <laughs> That's so cool. But can I? I want to ask a question too, because um, like when you started your theory, uh, it was there was no picture that you were going on. Like you were you were doing mathematical equations, and then at one right. point, did you realize that it made this this beautiful structure, geometric yeah. structure? Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, um, so what I had done is there had been this work done in the seventies. Right after the the uh, people would start talking about the weak force and then the strong force, and, and these things all have mathematical names. They're, they're uh, you know SU2, SU3. The, these Lie groups have names. And people realized that each of these different forces, electromagnetism, the weak force, and the strong force, could all be described as part of just one Lie group. Right? That they that you know there's this uh, there's this list of different Lie groups that is known. 
And people realize that these smaller ones that correspond to the different forces could be part of just one larger one. And that was, that's called a grand unified theory. Which is like a holy grail of sorts, right, in the science community? Well, it's a holy grail that was known. It, it, it's more like a, someone saw the little handle on the holy grail back in the 70s. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> but they didn't pick right. that shit up because they watched Indiana Jones. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but uh, uh, I, I suppose there's this one scene, various portrayals of the search for the holy grail, where, uh, yeah, string theorists chose poorly. <laughs> right. Um, no, it's subtle jab there. I, I, don't, I don't know if anybody's gonna know that reference, but anyway, yeah, um, they will. Yeah. The, but what happened is after the seventies is there were there were these ideas of how to unify the different forces in these grand unified theories, and there were a couple of Lie groups that the known forces would fit in, and they all sort of fit inside each other as they go up into higher dimension. And so what I was working on is uh, instead of having uh, some stringy model for these things. I was working on how do you unify this in a larger Lie group that can also describe gravity. Which not many people are really asking still, correct? Like we have no idea how gravity is incorporated with the, the standard model. Uh, a lot of people are asking it and oh. nobody really knows how to answer it. Correct. Sorry. Thank <laughs> <you>. <laughs> Just keep schooling me, man. It's all good. <laughs> <laughs> so you, so, you, you see, yeah, sorry, go on. You're, you're, you're thinking about how to right, incorporate so this gravity. Is, this is what I was, this is what I was working on. Uh, I started working on this uh, mostly to understand what electrons are. Because elect when, when you learn about electrons in when you're doing a PhD program in physics and you're doing particle, particle physics classes, you, you learn that electrons are these matrices that transform a certain way under, trans, under rotations. And this mathematical description of electrons is sort of very abstract mathematically. And it doesn't really match up with Einstein's very elegant geometric description of gravity. And when I was an undergraduate, I'd gotten to know Einstein's general relativity and his geometric description of space-time, his warping four-dimensional fabric. And it's really a beautiful description. It's a very elegant description of something that happens in nature described by this beautiful mathematics. And when you learn it, you're, I mean, it's very convincing that this is correct in some very fundamental way. So you have this nice geometric description of gravity as warping space-time. And then you get this other description of electrons as these matrices that transform a certain way in space-time. And it doesn't really match up. It's like the electrons are something tacked on to space-time, but they themselves don't have a geometric description in the same way. And that's what I wanted to find. I figured our universe is just one thing. If gravity is described in this geometric way, then there has to be a similar geometric description for electrons. What is it? And nobody seemed interested in the question. I mean, some people had these uh, string theory ideas where gravity and these electrons are vibrations of strings, but they had to go out on a limb in order to get these things to match up. And for the most part, they still haven't. And you're, you just, you're not convinced at all with string theory. No, I think they made too many assumptions and there were a lot of nice results that, that uh, encouraged people to keep going in those research directions. Mm -hmm. But I think it's ultimately a failed program. I mean, you have to conclude that. Now, people have been working on it for 30 years, and they really haven't gotten anywhere. I mean, they've gotten places, but nowhere that matches up with, with reality. Okay, then I, I want to ask something then, because, like, obviously, you've gotten a lot of flack for your theory, too, and people trying to poke holes in it. But it's like, not, neither one of the theories is like, like, neither one of them are complete. 
Like, why is string theory, like, it seems like that's, like, the main thing everybody knows about and everybody talks about and versus right. other the, alternatives, yeah. What's going on is string theory, more than anything else, is a very rich toolkit for building theories. Mm-hmm. So the problem is you, you have these, you know, these advanced mathematical tools now for building theories, and they work so well that you can build any theory working with them, and there's no reason that one theory should be weighted over another that's convincing. So, and, and it seems like the only theory they can't build in a consistent, coherent way is the one that matches the standard model that we know of in nature, right? So they have a hard, very hard time matching to this universe, but they have a, a, they have a, a large kit for building all sorts of very rich mathematical structures, and it keeps a lot of people employed. <laughs> and it's really, it's really engaging. I mean, a lot, a lot of these structures, I mean, when, when you're a mathematical physicist, uh, the mathematics itself has a deep attraction to it. And when you see some nice mathematical structure, it's like, oh, I, I want to work on this. I want to explore these different sides of this. And you can just keep going like that. And you can just keep going deeper and deeper into that rabbit hole. And, you know, you have this voice in the back of your head going, hey, wait, there's no rabbit in here. Mm-hmm. You've got to keep looking. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, that's what your point is. 30 years and pretty yeah research. so it's at some point you know you figure you know some people should go look in other rabbit holes <laughs> but why do you why do you think then you've gotten uh some flack for for your theory like uh, why don't why don't scientists or why aren't they more open to looking in those different rabbit holes rather than something that may not work out shop security um well there's a little there's a little bit of politics behind it i mean of course uh, strength theorists have grants and so forth and they sort of have this front presented to the, the funding bodies that say, hey, this is really promising research. This young researcher who just happened to be my student is very promising. You should give them money. Um, and they, they have this uh, wave going forward that's self-supporting. Mm-hmm. And, and they, have, they have conferences that support these directions and so forth. And a lot of this stuff is, is truly fascinating. I, I don't mean to denigrate this work. A lot of it is, is, is wonderful to play with. Uh, however, there is this growing sense that they have utterly lost connection with science and that they're not making any predictions that can be matched up to, to things coming out of experiment. And that's, that's bad. Sure. <laughs> and, 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 and I mean, it's, it's gotten so bad that people in the community are talking about redefining what science is so that they can accommodate strength theory. And really? that, that's, that's just bad. What? Yeah. That's just bad. Really? <laughs> yeah. I was, I was reading way back when, and I wish I knew the article I was reading, but, um, it was on the onion. No, um, but, uh, <laughs> Hey, America's finest news source. <laughs> <laughs> but like string theory, like it, it tests anything with string theory, like requires us to have, like, uh, we don't have any type of machinery to like test anything for string theory today. Is that correct? No, we don't. Um, it's worse than that. Hmm. Um, it's that string theory in a lot of, uh, in a broad sense cannot even be tested in principle. Okay. Explain that. So, so, <laughs> I mean, so, so when you're, you're working on theories, um, you come up with some uh, theory to describe the interaction of elementary particles, and it turns out a lot of these particles have very high masses, so you would not be able to expect to reach those high energies corresponding to those high masses uh, with existing technology. So it's like, okay, yeah, maybe in a thousand years we'll be able to build that, but it's, we're not going to see it for a long time. Um, and a lot of particle theorists you see that as job security, but, uh, but at least in principle, the theories they're working on is testable. Right. Uh, but uh, sometimes 
when you have a toolkit of theories that come out that, that you can build any theory to match this, then that's not even testable in principle a thousand years from now with super advanced technology. I mean, you're, you're talking about how, how do we verify this mm -hmm. physically, and there's just no way to do it anymore, not even in principle. And that's, that's when I think you're, you've sort of lost touch, and, and you have to say at that point that you're doing mathematics. You're not really doing uh, physical science. Are scientists uh, growing in uh, volume like like you having the same opinion now or like because obviously like Justin's saying like it's obviously seems like the more popular theory but um, like yes yeah okay yeah definitely now now, now my own work mm -hmm. and I, I tried to be very careful when I when I made this proposal that this is a proposal for a different direction to go in the sort of unification I'm doing and there there are a bunch of scientists that are pursuing this non-string unification idea and seeing where this leads them. Um, but for, for my own work, when I put, I put out this E8 theory in 2007, 2008, it had, it had several problems. It had several things where it didn't match known physics uh, precisely. It, it did have, so the, the main issue was for elementary particles, as well as the electrons and the up and down quarks and neutrinos, uh, there are two other generations of the same particles that have the same electric and weak and strong charges, but have different masses. They have larger masses. So, for example, you know, you think of the electron as, as being this neutral, this uh, weakly, electroweakly charged uh, particle with a certain mass. Uh, but we also have a muon and a tau, which look just like electrons in terms of their charge, but have higher masses. And these are the sort of things that particle accelerators create for very brief amounts of time. So you'll, you'll create a, a tau or a muon, and it'll rapidly decay into an electron. But so all the particles have these two other copies of them. Mm -hmm. And this is a huge mystery in physics. Nobody really knows why this is. The strength theorists don't know. They, and there are different models to try to reproduce it, but there's nothing that seems supernatural. And one of the interesting things about this E8 theory is it has this triality symmetry to it where there can be three groups of uh, electrons and quarks that, uh, that sort of map to each other through a, symmetry, a geometric symmetry of, of this object. And this is one of the most fascinating things about it. The problem is, is it doesn't seem to match up exactly to, to the properties of these particles. And I've been trying to figure out why this is and if there's any way that can get this to work. But when it was proposed in 2007, it just like, this was a, a very promising idea to pursue, but I didn't have it nailed down yet. And I tried to be very uh, upfront about this is not a complete theory. Right. People should not going around saying surfer discovers theory of everything. Uh, it's, <laughs> you try to put all, all the disclaimers up front. Uh, you're like, because I think the biggest pushback you had back then was, at least what I was reading, was it, with the peer review uh, aspect of uh, that paper. Uh, right. Yeah. And um, I think since then you've had people peer review, and I think you've actually done some more. So, like, what have you been doing re more recently yeah. regarding all that stuff? Well, more recently, I've been delving more into the geometry of Lie groups and figuring out how this triality symmetry can be used to describe these other two generations and actually how to, how to get a hold of this in a way that's compatible with uh, the way we describe space-time. So that's, that's what I've been doing for the last uh, six years or so. Nothing too happened. huge, obviously. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I like small problems. You know, no, honestly, Garrett, like, that's what is really admirable about you because you're asking really big questions and like – that's what drew me towards your work and like your theory. It's just kind of like, yeah, no one else is really talking about this or really taking a novel approach about it. So, and on beyond that, like 
it's a cool theory and it's a cool t-shirt. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but well, that, that's the ultimate, the ultimate goal. The is, ultimate you know, goal here is not, t-shirt. Yeah. yeah, it's not to forego like, you know, the next step of evolution or just like, you know, <laughs> pushing mankind forward. It's the t-shirt. <laughs> so, um, well, and, and I mean, it would be nice if humans could figure this out before the computers do. That'd be great. I'm pretty sure we yeah. would have to. <laughs> Since computers, we're, we're, gonna have, we're gonna have to do something so they don't lose all respect for us. Yeah, exactly. Just a little <laughs> bit here or there. Um, I wanted to dive in uh, about uh, the EA theory. Like, it predicts particles like beyond what we've already discovered. Correct. Right. So when when you look at these unification ideas, when you're talking about identifying the known particles as part of some larger geometric object. Mm-hmm. then there are other parts of that geometric object that correspond to the particles that we haven't seen yet in nature. And that's when you go out and look for them. And you say, okay, well, maybe if you collide these particles together at high enough energy, they'll produce some of these uh, predicted particles that we haven't seen yet. It's fascinating and, already just that you predicted, not only like existing stuff, like at the time you also predicted the Higgs boson with this. Um, yes. And that was discovered, what, 2012? Uh, and. Yeah. And like, I just that gets me excited. This as a passive person, just hearing about predicting new things that we don't even know. Like, it's just a map for us. Uh, it's it's awesome. It's so cool. Right, right. It's like it's like figuring out the rest of the map before anybody gets there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just just to clarify, with the uh, with Devesh's chest that I'm looking at right now, <laughs> I feel so, <laughs> so violated in this episode. It's so, so violated. So there, basically, when you came up with this. Uh, design basically there was like you saw the parts that were missing that you're like okay there has to be something here that's that we don't know about yet like how many like uh pieces of the puzzle were you missing from that right so when you when you take all the known elementary particle states and these three generations um for all the known force particles you have you know you have uh, I'm not going to go through them because there are about 220 different elementary particles. Oh, come on, Gary. That are not. <laughs> we I, wanted you to I, do it to I, I could go through man. the ball if you want me to. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, we trust you. Go on with your explanation. <laughs> You'll probably so, break our brains before the end of the episode, but yeah, keep going. And, and these, these can be matched up with uh, all the different dimensions, which correspond to different particles that would come out of this E8 theory. Mm. And this E8 theory, E8 Lee group is a 248-dimensional object, and some of these dimensions would correspond to space-time. And a bunch of the others would correspond to new particles. So it turns out there'd be about 18 or so new particles. 18? Yeah. And, Ooh, but, wow. I mean, a lot of these group, I mean, a lot of these are basically the, the same, same particles that have different charges, like different color charges. Mm-hmm. So, for example, uh, every quark, every different kind of quark comes in three color charges, either red, green, or blue. Corresponding to its its two color charges, okay. they make if you if you chart out so uh, to go into this the, the strong force is described by this eight dimensional Lie group called SU three. This eight dimensional Lie group within it has a two dimensional maximal torus. So there's this two dimensional donut sitting inside SU three, and you can basically count the twists of the other six directions in SU three that twist around this two dimensional. Uh, internal torus, and and when you plot out their twists, they make a hexagon, on in two dimensional as a two dimensional diagram. Hmm. So these the, these other six points, you plot them out, they, they make a hexagon of twists. Their twist numbers, are, so you, so each axis on your two dimensional graph corresponds to the twists around each of the two internal hmm. circles of the torus. So and then when you look at, look at the quarks, 
you plot out their twist, they make a little triangle of points corresponding to their red, green, or blue color is how they interact with these other points in the hexagon. And when you, when you, whenever you have an interaction between the force particles of the strong force, which are called gluons, and these quarks, then you have to add uh, these things in this two-dimensional diagram to see how one point can be added to another to give another point. And this is an allowed interaction for that force, and that's called a strong interaction. And, and this is how it works for SU3, the color force, but you build this up to, to larger and larger Lie groups with larger and larger numbers of circles twisting around one another and, until you get to this 248-dimensional E8 object, which appears to describe the structure of everything. And uh, you have You're these leftover. Come on, <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. I, I mean, this. I mean, I. I mean, I'm the first person who has to admit uh, the problems with this theory might never be solved, and it might just be that this object does not describe our universe, and it might be something else. Mm-hmm. But there's a correlation, without a doubt. Like that's there is a correlation. So, you, so uh, that, this is always the case. I mean, even even in grand unified theories, before you start talking about including gravity. Mm-hmm. Uh, whenever you have these grand unified theories, uh, they have a handful of new particles that they predict for grand unified theories. And some have a lot, some have few. And, you know, we go to higher, higher levels of energy in particle accelerators and we don't see them. Uh, then you start to lose confidence in these unified theories. And uh, for grand unified theories especially, there used to be this theory called SU5, that uh, there was a force unification theory, but it turns out that SU5 predicted that protons should decay uh, into other particles. So that would, that would make matter fundamentally unstable. Hmm. And they thought, well, maybe that was slow enough that we wouldn't see it. But experimentalists are very wily, and they're always trying to, uh, to stick it to theorists with wild ideas by making elaborate experiments that <laughs> can disprove theories. Mm-hmm. So in fact, uh, experimentalists uh, created this experiment where they... Uh, I forget exactly the details of it, but something like 50,000 tons of water in this underground cavern that they surrounded surrounded with photomultiplier tubes to uh, see if they could detect proton decay, and they did not. And they did it to such a level of precision, they were able to rule out this SU5 unification theory. Look at that. Hmm. All right. But they're, they're, but theorists, you know, they have their own bag of tricks. So there's this other, uh, this other Lie group called SO10 that corresponds to rotations in ten dimensions. Uh, there's also a valid unification theory, and it predicts proton decay, but at a much lower rate, so that they can still sneak under the limit set by this experiment. So, so that's still considered a, a valid possible theory. But there's always this, there's always this back and forth between experiment and theory, and this is what you want in physics. You want, mm-hmm. you want experiment to be able to rule out. Theories, but but now you have you have other issues like the the LHC, this large particle accelerator. Uh, part of the motivation for for building this huge thing was to see if people could find what are called superparticles. And superparticles are not part of E8 theory; they are a necessary part of string theory. Oh, wait, and I'm and, sorry, the, the superparticles are something that they're hoping to find and have not found yes. yet. Yeah, so I visited I visited the Large Hadron Collider in, in CERN How near cool Geneva. How cool was that? How cool was that? And is this something you drop anywhere? Like, yeah, I just visited. And but but you know, I'm I'm this guy with this weird theory visiting, but they it seems like they have a ballroom set up there that says "Welcome Home, Super Particles," right? <laughs> oh, but wow. they but but these particles have not shown up to the party. Oh man! Oh wait, is this one of the particles that you had a bet with another scientist about? 
Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah, you read about this. Can, so, can you explain that? Because that was one thing I found while researching you, and I was like, what? <laughs> there, yeah, there, there has to be an easier way to make money than making bets with Nobel laureates, but I'm not sure there's one that's more fun. Yeah, that was, that was got to be great. Explain that and what, what went down. Or if you have a lot to explain the details of that bet, you know. <laughs> All right. So, uh, so within the physics community, uh, this idea was put forward that there should be a, a symmetry between uh, matter and force, so that you should be able to have uh, all the force particles like photons and weak bosons and gluons should have matter partners that have the same charges as the force particles, but, uh, but they have different spins corresponding to the spins of matter. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, an electron, uh, and also the other way, things like electrons would have force particle partners. For an electron, it would be called a selectron that is like an electron, but it has integral spin instead of half integral spin. Okay. And, uh, and this is, this, when you do this, this, this is very, it seems strange. Like, why would anybody think of this? Why would anybody think this would happen? Why would anyone think of the EA theory of everything? Yeah. All right. Yeah. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but the, it turns out when you have this partnering between force particles and matter particles, it makes a lot of things work out better in the mathematics. Mm-hmm. Right, you get a lot of the infinities that pop up in in particle calculations disappear, and having this balance between force and matter really uh, makes things nice in a lot of ways. So, so a large part of the physics theoretical physics community has had a pretty high confidence in supersymmetry. Um, however, since I was off in this weird direction, and I was looking at the the way matter and force can come together is part of a larger structure, but not as being uh, supersymmetric partners to each other. Um, it's more like uh, men and women coming together in, in a marriage rather than having just being with your clone. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, I had uh, much less confidence in supersymmetry. Um, there's also, uh, for these grand unified theories, uh, if you believe in them, if you believe something like this uh, SO10 or E8 unification, mm-hmm. then all the forces at higher energies, up at, uh, even higher than our particle accelerator can go, uh, should have the same force strength because they're all part of one geometric object as you go up to higher energies. And if you do the calculation, you can actually calculate where those uh, the electromagnetic, the weak, and the strong force, where they should combine. And if you do it in the present set of known particles, they just miss each other. Those three lines don't quite cross. Hmm. And you can get those three lines to cross by adding super particles. It, things balance out, and, and those lines uh, come closer. They still don't exactly cross. They just come closer to crossing. But it is that, that's considered fairly convincing argument for super particles. But when I did the research, I looked into this. And to get three lines to cross, you only need to adjust one parameter. Right? If three lines are nearly crossing, mm-hmm. you can just turn one dial and get them to cross. Okay. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. All right. Ima- imagine you're, you're shooting at a target and you're trying to get you know, three laser beams to pass it at one point. If two of the laser beams are already crossing, then you can, you can just change the angle of the third beam until it crosses at the same point. Right, right. All right. So you don't need all these super particles to get this force convergence. You can just add a handful of Higgs bosons or a handful of other particles and get these, get these uh, unification to work. 
So you don't need this whole elaborate super symmetry uh, thing to work out. But but you have to understand that the the physicists who figured out so the physicists who figured out that when you add superparticles to a grand unified theory, the lines converge more closely. The fellow who did that is a fantastic fellow named Frank Wilczek. And when when you figure something like that out, you have a lot of confidence in it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're like, all right, this you know this these lines almost uh, come very close to crossing if don't if they don't cross exactly. And uh, so, really, this is this is a, a good justification to believe in superparticles, and the LHC should see them at these energies uh, that they're currently running at. So these should be seen. So, uh, and supersymmetry is this dominant uh, idea in particle physics, and a lot of theorists had very high confidence in it. And I'm kind of a troublemaker, so I was at one of these conferences. <laughs> Can never tell that. And 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 Frank was giving this talk on you know supersymmetry in grand unified theories and the future of physics. And at the end of the talk, I raised my hand. I said, you seem, you seem very confident that the LHC is going to see super particles. Would you be willing to make a bet on it? <laughs> and this is, this is in a conference room full of people, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm Dude, putting him on the spot. Out. He had, <laughs> oh my gosh. So I'm, I'm putting him on the spot, you know, so I'm being, you know, this and he, he could have said, you know, no, I'm not going to denigrate myself by, you know, by making some bet on this thing. But he's like, yeah, yeah, I'd be willing to bet on that. So, I'm, so and I, I didn't want to pressure him, right? I didn't want to be even more of a jerk. So I, so I asked him what time scale he'd like for the bet and what amount. And he suggested, uh, I think, five years and a thousand bucks. So uh, I said, yes, that sounds great. And the moderator of the conference, who was... Uh, Max Tegmark uh, agreed to judge the bet, and so we had a bet. That's fantastic. And so five years later, the LHC had a couple of minor hiccups. Uh, They had a a vacuum uh, implosion and a a few setbacks. Yeah, I just read about that. And very graciously, you gave him some more time. Right. So I so uh, I talked with. With uh, with Max and with Frank, and uh, agreed that it made sense that you know the LHC should have more time to accumulate more data uh, before we decide this bet. And so you're like, it's so- not gonna find anything. I'm a couple extra years. That's right. so funny. So, um, right. So we, we we tacked on another year to the bet, and then that year was up, and the LHC had accumulated more data. And they had not seen superparticles. And a lot of the particle physics community really started to wonder about, about supersymmetry. Because right. for superparticles to not be there means that supersymmetry could not be working at an energy scale that they needed to solve a lot of the problems that really justified the existence of supersymmetry to begin with. Mm-hmm. And, that, and this is a big deal because supersymmetry is necessary as part of superstring theory. Mm-hmm. That's what the super and superstring theory is, corresponds to supersymmetry. Okay. So, so this sort of took a lot of wind out of their sails. Um, and Frank's a, well, uh, a great guy, so he conceded the bet and sent me a check. So I, <laughs> no, um, he helped. Wow. Good that's for awesome. you, man. You call, good not good only for did both you, of you. you know, not only did you call him out in public, but you got paid for doing that. <laughs> like that's pretty amazing. Well, it's it's, it's 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 really funny. So I had this check now. You know, 
I'm, I'm really grateful now that you can deposit a check with your phone by taking a picture of it. Right. Because that means so I get to deposit it, it and check. also frame it. Yeah, there it is. Yeah. So, so I have this check now hanging in my office. And uh, in the memo part of the check, uh-huh. it says supersymmetry delayed. Oh, <laughs> my goodness. One last that was, jab. That, that was pretty funny. Times. That is hilarious. Garrett, yeah. uh, just in case you're wondering why you don't get invited to the other scientists' parties, this yeah, is why. This, <laughs> this is why, man. Yeah. <laughs> you're, just, you're just making bets left and right. Man, you can make a living off this, man. I mean, yeah, no, I really too little. No, I'm just kidding. No, that's awesome. I, 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 the fact that they he held his end of the bargain, though, and you're being yeah. a good sport uh, about like extending it. I, th- I think the whole thing is cool. That's I, <laughs> I loved reading about it. That's awesome. Um, so we were talking about LHC right now. And stuff, yeah, so can I, the, I have a, a dumb question uh, or a simple question that I'm sure you can explain. Dumb. <laughs> <laughs> um, so with the LHC, like, what is the reason we need um, to smash things together? Like, we're spending so much money on on the collider. Uh, why is that the best way to find these little particles? Could we not make like a freaking like twelve-story microscope? <laughs> like just if we're spending well, all this money. Essentially, essentially the LHC is pretty much a twelve-story microscope, but larger. <laughs> okay, all right. Yeah, Justin. And that's that's pretty close to what it is. No, really. You're you're when you look at a microscope, you're looking at photons bounce off of things, mm-hmm. and judging what's there based on the photons that come through this large machine and are, are magnified so that you can see what happened down there at small distances. Okay. And the LHC is exactly that, except you're, you're bouncing protons off of each other to see what things are made out of at those tiny distances. And to do that, you need this enormous machine. It's, but essentially, it's, it's very much like a big microscope. Okay. But- and if you're trying to see what's down there at the fundamental scales of matter, that's what you want on a big microscope. Now... For we also have to, as part of this microscope, we have to accelerate these protons to enormous speeds, enormous energies, as part of this collision. And then when you collide them together, the particles that they create can have a maximum mass that's limited only by the energy that you can get those protons up to. Mm-hmm. You understand? Right. So, so that's why it takes this enormous ring to accelerate these protons up to such high energies so that we can see new particles that have larger masses. And this is, the, and this is always the, the game that's played between theorists and experimentalists. As theorists come up with these theories that say, hey, maybe the universe is fundamentally this. And experimentalists say, well, if that should be the case, so there should be these particles that we just haven't seen yet at higher masses, but we build a bigger machine, and we can see up to these particles at higher masses and see if you theorists are right. Or we might even better... The experimentalist might see new particles that no theorists have predicted, and then the theorists would have to rapidly try to figure out what the heck that is and how that fits into the theories. Mm-hmm. It's a wonderful back and forth, and it's a back and forth to see what fundamentally our universe is. You know, what are the fundamental building blocks of nature? How do things work down there at tiny scales? It's a, it's a, I mean, this is a sort of a philosophical quest to figure out fundamentally what nature is. Right. Uh, I guess I'm still like a little bit hazy on the point of like you say when when you're you're spinning these things as fast as you can, and you create these these particles. Like uh, yes, are, they're not there. They have to be there beforehand, right? Like why? No, they don't. No. So you can when you so 
there's this equivalence between mass and energy, right? It was Einstein that really figured this, this out quite poignantly. And so if you bring enough energy up into a tiny enough space, you can create particles out of nothing except that energy. All you have to have is uh, all the charges have to balance. See, the electric, the weak, the strong charges, they all have to balance. So you have to have different particles going off in different directions such that the total charge of the combined system stays the same. Right? Okay. But, but given your energy constraint, however much energy you can concentrate into that small space, you can pop any particle into existence as long as it has mass less than that energy that you brought together. What? <laughs> Justin's upset right now. Justin's and this is, really upset right now. <laughs> well, well, Justin, how do you think the universe came to existence? This universe popped into existence out of nothing. This is, this is the ultimate free lunch. <laughs> the ultimate free lunch. That's the episode of the. T- uh, that's the yeah, title. That is no, no, I hope not. That's a that's a quote from Alan Goose. Oh, even better. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's great. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. So these these you know the universe appears to come into existence out of nothing, mm-hmm. but all the charges should balance, and it's just a matter of you know you, you can do this uh, microscopically by just bringing enough energy into one spot. Now it turns out. Uh, the LHC is not the only place in the universe with high-energy protons. It turns out there are lots of stellar processes that will kick off high-energy protons that, that come, come to us with energies vastly exceeding the energy of the protons at the, at the LHC. Natu- naturally occurring. Yes. And, and this, is, this is probably the main reason we knew that the LHC was not cre- going to create giant black holes that destroyed the planet. That was my next question. That was legitimately his next question. He's going to ask about the black hole, possibly of a black hole. So, <laughs> so we know that these high energy protons are hitting the moon. They're hitting our atmosphere um, with vastly higher energies that are produced in this large hadron collider. And they're not destroying the moon. They're not destroying the Earth. And they're hitting us all the time. So there, there's no danger here. And you say, well, why can't we just look at the collisions there? It's like, well, you could if you knew exactly where one was going to hit. Mm. Oh, it's all about taking the randomness out of it and being yeah. able to focus That's right. on so one point. It's like, uh, yes, these collisions are happening all the time, but unless you have a microscope pointed exactly where the interaction is, you're not going to see what particles are produced. So if like the LHC discovered like a particle or just made some massive discovery that is completely in contradiction of your work like what would be your next steps <laughs> like what would be coming i'd have I, I'd, I'd have to either give up on this theory because there is ev- direct evidence that it is wrong mm-hmm. or if that provided some direction that could go in that showed how the theory could be motivated motivated ah. If there was some direction that that indicated the theory could be modified to accommodate it in a reasonable way, mm-hmm. I could go forward with that. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, uh, during my research, there have been several times when I've just given up on a direction and gone and done something else. Really? Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not going to argue with nature. I mean, if an experiment comes back and says, yeah, this theory just doesn't accommodate this new data, you have to give up on that theory. Gary, you sound like a scientist, man. <laughs> 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 you sound like a, a typical scientist, but that's well. Yeah, uh, I'm not. I'm not religious about anything. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
would it take just like uh, we're, we're waiting right now with the LHC to to find anything new, right? Any anything that's a surprises us or right so far we found the higgs boson which is fantastic Mm -hmm. but it's expected right that was something that everybody expected and right part of justin's homework for this episode i told him to watch uh the documentary particle (laughs) fever (laughs) oh that's yeah it's really well done although you'll notice you'll notice the bias towards supersymmetry in that documentary oh yeah 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 yeah. uh that is completely indicative that is completely indicative of the uh, the dominant direction in the culture that's nuts especially when you're like you just said if all if there's evidence contradicting then you just got to move on sort of thing well a lot of a lot of high energy theorists now are changing direction and they're not going into traditional string theory they're they're studying uh geometric descriptions of particle scattering amplitudes not a mouthful of which is which is some fascinating work uh-huh. um, and there's some tenuous connections back to string theory but it's uh, it's mostly its own new study mm-hmm. and that's that's a really interesting work and so they're they're you know the whole community can just switch and do something else and that and this is largely a result in my opinion of uh, there not being evidence for for string theory over several decades Garrett is there do you know of any other group that's working on just identifying like gravity or gravitrons like just figuring like pretty much interstellar it like figuring out how to control a gravitron and make us do amazing feats of stuff um well the more <laughs> and more we look into it mm-hmm. the more evidence there is that einstein's theory of gravity is correct we see so, the gravitational wave discovery correct yeah, yeah yeah so this discovery by by ligo of gravitational waves is fantastic nobody thought that they would be able to detect gravitational waves in our lifetimes. They're just too weak. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're, you're talking about shaking a mirror uh, at, a di- at distances smaller than a proton mm-hmm. and being able to detect that and, and see how much it's shaking and saying, oh, based on how much is it shaking, there was a black hole over here. <laughs> that, that's there. There were two black holes spiraling into one another. It's so it's really fantastic. Yeah, it's ridiculous to think of how many things we shouldn't be able to detect. But because of our technology and where we are to, like, we have instruments so sensitive that we can sense, like, we can see these things. Like when that's I was, right. like that when I was reading about the gravitational wave bit, I was just like, wait, okay, this is like a whole new way of detecting things out in space. Right, right, yeah. and it's not. It wasn't light, mm-hmm. right? And it's no. It's not other particles. We really detected gravitons. That's amazing. Coming, coming at us across the universe from these black holes spiraling in on one another. So awesome. I can never get enough information on just black holes and just gravity. Like, <laughs> like just I want yeah. to know what's going on there, which we, we have no idea. It's a singularity. Well, fundamentally, I mean, what happens is – so now we understand black holes much better because of the discovery of these gravitational waves. Mm-hmm. We have much more confidence even than we had before in Einstein's description of general relativity. And uh, which includes the description of gravitational waves. Mm-hmm. And the only thing we really don't know what happens is when two black hole singularities get very close, get microscopically close to one another. Mm-hmm. We don't know what the hell happens. Uh, because we don't, because at that point, you need quantum mechanics to describe the gravitational interaction. And we don't have a, don't currently have a consistent way of describing how how gravity interacts quantum mechanically. Isn't the uh, I, I mean, again, I'm not educated on this at all, just what I read on the onion. But um, <laughs> <laughs> no, but isn't like um, 
isn't a hypothesis like they'll absorb one another, like it'll turn into one massive black hole? This is what we understand classically. Okay. And, and this is what happens. But microscopically, in terms of the exchange of gravitons, when they get very close together, we, we don't have a good way of describing that using current physics. Man, we need because uh, under under current physics, I mean, it's literally a singularity, which means you're talking about infinite energies. And whenever you plug infinities or get infinities out of your equations, you don't get sensible sensible answers. We need to send uh, Tars and Matthew McConaughey into a black hole. <laughs> <laughs> That's, That's the answer. This, get this stuff That's solved once and idea. for all. Once and for all, it's either Matthew McConaughey or Matt Damon, one of the two. Right. <laughs> We've sent them into space so many different times. <laughs> <laughs> At this point, they're our best astronauts. Yes, <laughs> without a doubt. All right, all right, <laughs> all right, all right. Um, do you think uh, it's complete tangent? By the way, um, do you think uh, wormholes are possible, and do you think we'll ever see uh, humans create one? Oh, that's a good question. So, uh, in Einstein's equations, mm-hmm. there are solutions that correspond to wormholes. Mm-hmm. So, in Einstein's theory. Uh, you can construct wormholes where you can go into one place in the universe in space or time and pop out in a different space or time mm-hmm. uh, connected by a wormhole. The problem is, in order to build such a wormhole, mm-hmm. um, you have to have normal matter, which pulls space-time into a point, into its thro- the throat of the wormhole, but then you need some other sort of matter that has a negative energy density that will then expand the throat of the wormhole back and glue it together with normal space-time. And as far as we know, there is no such matter with a negative energy density. All the matter, including antimatter, that we deal with has a positive, positive energy density, and it just uh, sucks other matter into it, and we'll just tighten it up. So uh, you'd need some sort of matter, essentially, that falls up that to falls create up. a wormhole. That falls up? Yes. Okay. Yep. Does uh, your theory uh, predict any such particle or like matter to exist? No, it does not. Mm, interesting. So, so right. So you need you need this sort of exotic matter in order to build wormholes. Mm-hmm. And as far as we know, there is no matter that falls up. Even antimatter falls down. Um, so helium uh, problem solved. Done. <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> Justin, why aren't you helping these guys more often? You know, was he doing a podcast? <laughs> Well, no, it's actually it's it's not the helium falling up; it's the nitrogen falling down around the helium. Uh, come on, Justin. Helium go up. You're to, <laughs> this is your job interview. The one thing right? I could have contributed to the scientific community. Thanks, Garrett. Gosh. Yeah, no, sorry, buoyancy. We understand. Well, hold on, Garrett. Actually, I have another question about wormholes. It's sure. If you were to somehow find this exotic matter and create one, right? Yes, there are lots of papers about that. Which I'm never going to read. <laughs> it's, it's not, it's not going to happen. Right. But, okay, right. go ahead. But let's say you could. Would you – like how does that work with time? Like are you like instantaneously placed in that like in space? Like how does that work? Like are you in the past well, or like what is going on? Because – yeah. Well, there are different there are different types of theoretical time travel. Mm-hmm. So I need to talk to Ken Warren about this. I'm sorry. I'm talking to Garrett Lisi. <laughs> Should have had Ken on this episode too. So, so there's – uh, in Einstein's description, Einstein describes space-time as this four-dimensional fabric mm-hmm. that has this shape, and this shape of this four-dimensional fabric can have wormholes in it, right? Connecting different different points in the space-time. Mm-hmm. Uh, as long as this whole four-dimensional fabric satisfies Einstein's equations, it's good. It's considered a, a possible space-time, and it has matter in it corresponding to the curvature of that space-time. 
Mm-hmm. Right? And if you have wormholes, you have to have exotic matter that, as far as we know, uh, cannot exist. Right. And, but it, it can still be a valid four-dimensional solution. Now, quantum mechanics appears to be very different. Quantum mechanics says that when things interact, you have different possibilities, and you can attach a different probability to, the, to each of those different possibilities. And you don't know which possibility uh, you're in until you measure it. Right. And, and, and before you measure it, these possibilities can interact with one another. They can interfere with one another. So it's like we're used to flipping a coin, right? And that coin can be heads or tails before you look at it. Right. But quantum mechanically, there's the, the heads will affect the tails if that's a microscopic coin. So no. quantum mechanics is, is that weird. Yeah. So it says, it says reality is continually branching into these different possibilities. Mm-hmm. And if you're down at the microscopic scale on the scale of atoms, these different possibilities interfere with one another. They affect one another. So it's as if all these possibilities exist in this weird quantum mechanical way at once. <laughs> okay. okay. All right. And, like, and does this have anything to do with Schrodinger's cat? <laughs> it is. This yeah. is, this is, it's exactly, this is, this is why Schrodinger came up with this description of Schrodinger's cat. You have these two different realities and they affect one another. And until you measure, you don't know which one uh, corresponds to your reality. And I'm trying to be very careful with my language here for a reason. So uh, it's the old interpretation of quantum mechanics that used to be the majority was the, the Heisenberg interpretation, which says once you measure, once you look at the cat, uh, the universe becomes either the universe with the live cat or the universe with the dead cat. But the, the more current interpretation of quantum mechanics is the many worlds interpretation or variants of it, which says the universe is branching. And now you have – you as an observer have branched – Right. You're, when you interact with the cat, one of me has seen the cat alive, and one of me has seen it dead. That's right. And and once that happens, those two versions of you no longer interact and are not aware of the other's existence. Man, this is when we start talking about the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And we got like, <laughs> right. DC, like they're right. talking about multiverses and. All right. So it, so at that point, this is a much more, and this is not compatible with Einstein's description of gravity. It's not at all. Okay. It's not. Okay, because remember, Einstein's was a, a block universe, is what it's called, where you just have this four-dimensional shape, it satisfies the equations, we're good. Right. Right? Quantum yeah. mechanics says, says, no, we have this branching reality, where you're branching, each, each, each different branch corresponds to a different four-dimensional space-time, and on a microscopic level, they can interact. Uh-huh. Right? They interfere with one another. And so you have this branching tree of space-times now as your model for, for reality, and then that's very different. And in that one, can you have wormholes between different branches? Who the heck knows? We don't have a good theory of quantum gravity. It's unknown. Right. So, what was it? Uh, you were talking about this. Uh, was it like Newtonian schema versus Lagrangian? How do you say that? I don't even know. Like solving all at once. Is that how it, kind of like you're talking about? Well, that's a very technical thing that you're bringing up out of nowhere. I, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> you're, talking, you're talking about uh, when you're saying like. Uh, Quantum, anyways, yeah, I'll bring it. Let's let's move on. Um, <laughs> you're talking about this stuff. I'm like, I'm just you're flashing like you're talking about block universes and stuff. I'm like, 
oh man, I'm just flashing back to Ken Warren. <laughs> like, I, <just> like, <laughs> I was like, we're talking about all the stuff in that episode too. I was like, all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, this is this is uh, Ken's wheelhouse. Hey, and Garrett, if I can just throw terms out there to make myself seem smarter, please allow me to do so. <laughs> <laughs> it does. I'm trying does. to give you opportunities to do that. I know, I know, and I appreciate. It. I know I'm screwing every opportunity <laughs> up, but it just I'm going to keep trying. <laughs> but uh, okay, I know. Uh, the or, you know, if I'm you if you feel intimidated, just keep in mind you're talking to a surfer who's sitting here looking out at the ocean on Maui. You know, I, I, when I think right, about so. that, I'm jealous. <laughs> like that's not, like even on this podcast, we were we're hearing the birds in the background, and it's just. Oh, man, it's making me feel relaxed is doing this episode. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> oh, you're relaxed? Oh, uh, yeah, man. Excited okay. and relaxed. Well, that makes one of us. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, don't to, get me wrong. Trying to process this right now. My, my brain's broken, but <laughs> I'm glad Garrett's explaining it because it's making it feel less broken. Um, so, Garrett, let me ask you this next question. Uh, you said in your last TED Talk, you actually ended it on this, where you're saying the things going on at the LHC, uh, discovering new particles, this is the greatest adventure going on in science today. Um, let's flip that on a, a little bit. If budget and politics were not a concern, right? What would you mm. feel like? Uh, what would you want to see happen that would take that mantle as being the most adventurous thing going on in science? What else would you like to see going on today if we didn't have politics and funding being a roadblock? Oh wow! I mean, that's a that's a huge open ended hypothetical. I love it. The <laughs> uh, uh, well, I I love to see the progress of technology mm -hmm. certainly for humanity uh, and for us as individuals mm -hmm. the research that could be done that would have the highest impact would probably be longevity research mm -hmm. life extension type stuff that's right mm -hmm. so so trying to figure out how through pharmaceutical or other technological means to extend healthy human lifespan how do you feel uh, about that singularity Ray Kurzweil talks about 2045? Uh, I think Ray is a little overly optimistic. Mm -hmm. um, I, I do think, I mean, if you if technological progress continues, I do think it's inevitable that computers would eventually have the capacity to perform computations with greater complexity that can be processed by the human mind, mm -hmm. that we would exceed our own mental capacity using machines. And that ultimately, computers will be able to think better than humans in every quantifiable way uh, at some point in the future. The question is, when is that going to happen? And what are the implications of that? Mm -hmm. um, uh, Ray Kurzweil is uh, a little bit older, um, so his predictions are it's going to happen uh, before he dies. Right. <laughs> 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 no time limit or anything. <laughs> I'm I'm a little younger, so I'm I'm hoping. My, so my prediction is that I hope it happens before I die. Sure, absolutely. <laughs> but it, there there seems to be a little bit of bias here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think. Um, but but I mean, and there's also the question. I mean, a lot of people are terrified. You know, what's going to happen when we have super intelligent machines? Are they going to uh, destroy humanity? Um, well, when huge changes happen. Hmm. Uh, humanity does adapt and the adaptation is not always comfortable but it's never instant and even for super intelligent machines they're still going to have to learn how nature works they're still going to have to grow like a baby even if they do it at an accelerated rate um, to learn things 
so they're not going to be instantly super powerful. It's not going to be like some foom where suddenly there's some super intelligent computer that has super capabilities. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be that level of scientific uh, science fiction weirdness. It's going to be gradually machines start beating humans at more and more things. You know, it's I love that you said it because like simple things like we don't uh, acknowledge really like wearing a Bluetooth headset is like really integrating with technology into right. you know and like I just got recently in my home uh, an Amazon Dot right so I have access to Alexa their AI so I'm like telling mm-hmm. it, I'm talking to nobody now in my home saying like Alexa <laughs> uh, turn on my family room lights or Alexa turn off the record player or you know what I mean and like it's Yes. I had some friends over this past week and they're just looking at me baffled like, what? That's right. My mom's joking with me. It's like, are you lonely? Why are you talking to your home? Like, but like, that's the thing. Like, it's a natural thing too. Like, they're seeing this right now and eventually, like if you were talking to someone from the 80s today, they're like, you're talking to your home, man. Like, you okay? from, from the 80s, we didn't even have cell phones. Exactly. Well, no, hold on. We had the bricks. We had the bricks. We had those big bricks. We had the Zach Morris thing going on, no? Right. <laughs> so, uh, almost nobody had cell phones. Almost no one had cell phones. Um, you needed a briefcase for the cell phone. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but no, I think it's kind of cool. Um, obviously time will tell what's going on with uh, that singularity bit that Ray's talking about. But uh, I do, it's nuts how fast technology is just taking off and yeah. just integrating with our daily lives. Just automatically. And as, as scary as it seems, I would really like to see it happen um, oh, because too. I think there'll be huge uh, improvement in human life. And I, I don't think the humans will wipe out. I, I don't think the super intelligent machines will wipe out humans because we have different resource interests. Yep. I think I mean, it, if, computers computers are much more interested in power mm-hmm. like energy <laughs> ele- electrical power yeah. than than humans are and you know uh, the last place a computer wants to be is on the island of Maui where we have salt air and uh, you know an ocean and trade winds <laughs> yeah come on that's why you live there <laughs> I think uh, honestly man on that note like if people if, if machines are going to kill people it's going to be people behind the machines doing the job just, right. So yeah. that's that's a bigger risk because we, we certainly have a lot of uh, autonomous drones right now that are programmed to kill people. Right. And this is uh, uh, this they sort of went flying right by Asimov's laws of robotics. Right. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, so, yeah, we, we have we have killer drones um, and it's quite possible that, you know, these it's more than likely that these drones are going to get better and better at this and smaller and smaller. And so even warfare is going to look very different. Yeah, no. I saw, um, cyber yeah. cyber warfare is certainly ramping up and becoming much more of a thing. Mm-hmm. I know, man. You can't go like two or three months without hearing somebody, some big corporation being hacked or something like that. I feel. Yeah, no, and now it's not just corporations. It's like you know the Democrat Democratic oh, yeah. Party and all yeah. these things. Yeah. Yeah, it's nuts. Um, yeah. Okay, I think we need to start wrapping this episode up now, Justin, <laughs> because I don't. One, I just can't stand the ridicule of being so stupid anymore. <laughs> Also, it's just no, no, no. It's, it's uh, you're not that bad. <laughs> as, as Mr. Doctor Lisi here just swipes his shoulder like a little bit, you know, he's like, yeah, you're not that bad. It's okay, you know. I had one question written down like at the beginning of this, and I don't know, maybe I'll just ask it right now. Do you ever like just walk into like Starbucks or something and just be like, I'm the smartest freaking dude here, like for sure, without a doubt. Um. Uh, no, it's <laughs> it's it's more like I just don't want to talk to people. <laughs> <laughs> true scientist, what a true scientist you are. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I I I I mean, just for practical reasons, I'm sort of an elitist. 
<laughs> I like to surround myself with intelligent, vibrant people. Yeah. Um, and uh, wh- whatever, you know, whatever culture or race that comes from, that's great. But, <laughs> uh, but dealing with, with average humanity um, is sort of stressful. Well, I hope you've been able to endure this interview, man. Yeah. <laughs> with us normies. With us normies. As average folk. Uh, no, man, uh, you're good, Gary. That's... Uh, but, I mean, we're, we're, we're all humans. I mean, I'm yeah, not... Of course. I'm, 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 no, but am, that's why... Like, in, in almost all respects, I'm just another average human. Right? Like, but that's cool about doing the Pacific Science Institute. Did I cor- say correctly? I said it yes, correctly. Yes. yes. Awesome. Wonderful. I'm improved. Uh, one of, yeah. Um, that, I'm cool. glad you've learned something. You've learned this. one thing, at least. <laughs> um, no, but that's cool about what you're doing there, because, like, you are surrounding yourself with, like, intelligent people, and, like, great things happen when that kind of collaboration starts occurring. Uh, that's well, that's, that's, this is the idea. I mean, uh, the PSI I founded uh, for a couple reasons. Um, one is I had all this attention and I wanted to put it to good use at, uh, ben- in a way that benefited the scientific community uh, in, a, in a broader sense. Mm-hmm. Um, also, for selfish reasons, as you point out, I wanted to surround myself with bright people. Um, and uh, also... Um, I wanted to do something that could not fail. Yeah. So I, I, working on particle physics and, and this unification idea is very hard. And it's quite likely I could work on this my whole life and it will fail. Mm-hmm. And it will just not be right. And, uh, and, and so I wanted something I could do that was guaranteed to succeed. And when you have a charitable 501c3 foundation that is dedicated to bringing scientists to pretty places and giving them a good environment <laughs> while they're there and show, showing them around Maui to have a good time. Yeah. Th- this cannot fail. It, I, I totally agree with you. And that's uh, part of the reason why uh, core foundation really likes what you're doing. Uh, the collaboration aspects is part of our mission and uh, we appreciate all the stuff you're doing for humanity. Right. So what, what uh, core is creatives on release? Yeah. Yeah. What, what is this? Tell me a little bit about that. Oh, yeah, man. Uh, it's Ooh, the, switching uh, the interview around. Oh, I like it. Whoa, yeah. whoa. You're on the interesting <laughs> hour, man. I don't know if you're allowed to do this. No, um, <laughs> no Core Foundation uh, produces this podcast, The Interesting Hour. It's, uh, again, full disclosure, I am the founder of that foundation. Um, <laughs> and uh, we have a small team of people from uh, primarily the entertainment industry and uh, just business aspects. Uh, just getting this uh, foundation up and running where... What we're trying to do is bridge the whole uh, aspect for people where just show them where we're going. Like there's something special about the future. Like we're going in a very positive direction versus what Hollywood likes to promote, like an apocalyptic future. Like <laughs> So um, that really kind of spurred that whole thing. And um, uh, just core Foundation is just trying to get the message out there from other organizations. Just partner with them. Uh, if an organization has uh, a mission that completely aligns with core foundation and uh, some other things that we'll vet, uh, we'll actually comp uh, like a full PSA for them just to help them get their message out, like a high quality um, Hollywood. So this is yeah. this is a way to give creatives a more direct and different channel. To absolutely, the absolutely. Uh, I want people fantastic. to be coming to Core Foundation when they want to know accurate and stuff like people are working on, like hearing you talk about what you're doing and the fact that you're a surfer in Hawaii, <laughs> like and just like you're that's tangible for the average person it's like hey maybe i can do something and a lot of people i feel out there are whether they've been talked down to their whole life or not encouraged in the proper way like people have talents and you should foster those no matter how small or big they are 
and uh, just seeing other people doing inspirational work is all it takes. Like when I was in high school, I was able to uh, shadow a writer at the Tonight Show with Jay Leno. And the big in that writer, he was explaining to me, like, you don't have to be a doctor or an engineer, like something that's like a staple to make money or to make sustainable living. You can be doing what you love. And, you know, it's just it's in that spirit. Yeah. Why Core Foundation. Oh, that's 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 fantastic. I think yeah. creatives are, are wonderfully good at finding non-traditional careers and non-traditional paths and realizing you don't have to abide by these conservative scripts that are laid out before us as choices traditionally that you can sort of go out and make your own way in the world. It's a, it, that's really a fantastic thing to know and it encourages a lot of creativity. Absolutely. And that's why you're on the show, man. <laughs> so, uh, we think you, uh, you embody a lot of those, uh, traits. So again, we appreciate the time because we know you're a busy guy surfing and uh, <laughs> like researching and stuff, but like, uh, yeah. thank you for taking the time to be on the show. Uh, yeah, well, it was, it was good talking with you, Devesh, and you, Justin. Yeah. yeah. Well, wait, last question before we head out. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Last question. What is your your favorite and least favorite part of explaining your theory to people like us? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> well... <laughs> we, we stopped here. Yes, the yes. one thing he couldn't answer. <laughs> we did it. Good job, Justin. I'm, I'm utterly speechless. <laughs> well, there's there's an internal wrestling match that happens whenever you ask a technically versed person to describe their work to a popular audience. Mm-hmm. There's a wrestling match between wanting to be technically correct and portraying the knowledge, and also wanting not to use too much jargon or overwhelm mm-hmm. the, the people listening because then, then trying to do this is utterly useless. Right. So, so trying to describe the mathematics of Lie groups and representation theory and particle interactions uh, at a popular level, it, it's always, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's tricky to do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, do I, is it my least or most favorite? I, I don't know. The, uh, I think you just like talking. I, I, think, I think my favorite part is probably the the humor and just hearing you guys laugh too much. <laughs> well, thanks, so, man. I, I, like sometimes when when I just like my mind's a blank, like you just gotta make gotta a laugh. joke and move on. Like it's no, like, man, like, <laughs> it's like you gotta laugh at that. Like you know what? I'm that stupid, and like it's just like are you serious about that? Like this is amazing. Uh, yeah, laughter is a great way, man. <laughs> Don't hate on our laughter, Garrett. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's. I mean this is this is. Uh, one very different edge that I think humanity still has over machines, right? Right. Once uh, com- computers still really suck at comedy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's no algorithm for that yet. Not yet. Yep. Um, They're working on it. They're working I, on it. They're I just know. bad at it. Um, Garrett, where can people find you and keep up with your work? <laughs> oh, hopefully they can't. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> that's what, that's what, that's why I, have, I live in Hawaii. I have a huge moat. <laughs> yeah. Can you give us your anti-plug? Yeah, give me your anti-plug. Uh, you cannot find me in Hawaii. Can, <laughs> Please don't look yeah. me up on Twitter. Do not look up PSI on Twitter. And get my Please name. do Pardon. not reach out for me for any future interviews. Exactly. This is my last one. No, if, 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 if people want to find out about, about me or, or my work or PSI, they can they can Google for it and they'll, they'll find me. Um, uh, for the people who want to be spoon-fed uh, direct access... To me? Uh, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. 
love it. This is the first plug was just a Google search. Garrett, <laughs> you have been freaking amazing. Thank you so much yeah. for coming on and taking the time, man. This has been an awesome episode. Thank you, man. Sure. Good. And uh, good luck uh, Good luck with this show in general. Yeah, absolutely. The show that doesn't exist. The yeah. show that doesn't exist. We are off the grid, just like Garrett. <laughs> We're Google search only. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Garrett. Thanks a lot. Uh, I hope everyone enjoyed this episode. And uh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Great talking with you guys. Yep. Dude, Justin, that was such a ridiculous episode. Mm-hmm. Do you even remember anything that he said? <laughs> it was Any- a lot to process. It was a lot to process. I hope that we were at least able to ask follow-up questions in like a manner that was not. Yeah, I hope uh, we were asking things that the viewers wanted to ask or not the viewers the listeners are to say but like also more importantly man like this guy is doing some cool stuff i want to mm-hmm. be at the pacific science institute i just want to check it out yeah he he was a little bit uh weird about that invite that he did or did I not know, give us it I was know. like uh but i'm sure he just forgot oh, at the yeah, end to yeah, invite yeah, us we're like buddies you know, so i'm, I'm sure yeah i mean yeah. I'm, I'm going there next week and just gonna <laughs> pop in you know surprise him <laughs> absolutely see what he says Let could you know. imagine the horror on his face <laughs> like hey can i talk to your smart friends <laughs> He slowly closes the door to your face. No, but everyone, check out Garrett Lisi. Uh, even though he would not like to be checked out, uh, check him out. He's on Twitter, and uh, he's don't a, follow him on Twitter. Do not follow him. Don't on. follow him yeah. at the Pacific Science Institute. Yeah. He wants to be left alone. Definitely so. don't research more about his theory. <laughs> Honestly, guys, we can all get a little smarter just following people like this guy. So uh, thanks for joining for this episode. Uh, yeah, last thing, uh, please subscribe on iTunes. Find us please. on Facebook, Instagram. Twitter we're all over there we're all over please interact with us if you have any suggestions or like I said before if you yourself have a cool interesting job hobby interest whatever let us know and maybe you can come on the show and uh, chat with us this hits up yeah that's really what it comes down to and we just want to talk to people you know and uh, yeah just hit us up guys Uh, again online and remember this show was brought to you by Core Foundation shout out to Chuck Levins again and the Pacific Science Institute yeah cool people doing cool things thanks for listening guys check us out next week and and check us out check us out